You know, I want to begin today uh, with a phrase that I think all of us have used at some point. I think all of us have said these words. I think we started saying these words when we were very, very young. And we still say these words no matter how old we are. And they're the words, I got this. My, my two-year-old daughter, this is her favorite phrase right now. Everything we do, it's, I got this, Papa. I got this, Papa. Whether it's buckling her seatbelt or uh, going to the bathroom or putting her clothes on or putting her you know, food away. Like Everything is, I got it, I got it, I got it. And, and the funny moments are when she doesn't. And we have this little fight back and forth. And as I was thinking about that phrase, and we even had one of those moments last night, I was reminded of a moment in my life where I said, I got this. It was a normal, I think it was September 2015, just the average day. And I got an email from my wife and it didn't have a subject and it didn't have anything in the body except for a link. And I clicked the link and it said, Marine Week is coming to Phoenix. And I wrote her back and I said, why'd you send me this? And uh, she said, well, they're doing marine workouts in the mornings. I thought you might want to go. I'm like, are, are you serious? <laughs> She's like, yeah, it might be fun. You know, I said, working out with marines? Are you kidding me? And so she's like, yeah, you should go. And so uh, I started calling my buddies. All of them are wusses. None of them wanted to come. And uh, so on Saturday morning, I went down to downtown Phoenix where the Marines were gathered to work out with them. And uh, so, so they said, we're going to do a modified, and I said, thank God for the word modified, a modified Marine combat readiness test, um, which was, I was scared. Um, and so there was running, there was crawling, there was jumping, there was lifting, um, and uh, I'm still not even sure how I finished it, but one of my friends who, was, who I ended up running into there uh, was there watching a, a mutual friend of ours, and she took a video of it. Do you want to see me doing the Marine? You know, so here we go. I'm the guy in black in the middle. Notice how slow I'm moving. So anyway, um, so I, I got home that day, and I was bent over. And I was holding parts of my body. Luckily, I wasn't bleeding anywhere. And um, my wife said, how, how was it? And I said, how was it? Um, and so I got done that day, and I was, I was reminded of a really important truth. And that's that we all tend to overestimate our abilities. We all tend to overestimate our abilities whether it's working out with Marines, whether you're going to assemble something that comes with some assembly required and you realize you're in over your head, you know, whether you plan for five hours of work to get done in three, uh, whether you are in the gym and you think you can lift a weight on your own without a spotter and then you have to yell for somebody to come spot you. No matter what it is, I think we all tend to overestimate our abilities. And it starts when we're young and in some ways it doesn't change even when we get older. You know, that day with my wife and I came home and I, got, and I was, you know, bruised. The, the guy who carried me um, dug his hands in so tight into my chest that I had hand bruises on my pecs. Um, and then he, while carrying me, he fell three times. And I'm not sure who had more bruises, him or me. And my wife said, wow, I'm surprised you did that. I said, are you kidding me? She's like, I didn't think you were actually going to do it. I said, well, then why did you send it to me? You know, and so... This is a little free marriage therapy right here. Um, but I just was reminded, as often as I go back and watch that video, that, that I thought I was capable of more than I actually was that day. And sadly, that in a lot of ways hasn't changed. 
that I think I'm capable of more than I actually am. And so this morning, as we continue our summer series called Jesus Plus Nothing, we're talking about our inability. We're talking about our inability to save ourselves. We're talking about our inability to make ourselves right with God. And so this morning, if you got a handout in your bulletin when you came in, it looks like this. I'd encourage you to pull it out and, and make some notes this morning. And the central idea of this message is this, that in Jesus we make an exchange. We exchange our inability for an inheritance. In Jesus, we in exchange our inability for an inheritance. You know, I'm not sure when you, how old you were when you realized that you had some inabilities that were going to cause some large challenges in your life. But along the way, we discover the, the extent of our inabilities and we come to the place where we realize that, that we need to receive something else. And the good news that we've been celebrating all summer long in this series is that we can exchange our inability and receive a gift from God that this morning I'm calling an inheritance. And I'm not sure if you've ever inherited anything before. I'm, I'm waiting for that long-distant uncle who I don't know, but apparently loves me enough to leave me a lot of money. Um, an inheritance is often something you get from someone you're related to or who cares about you and they leave you something significant or a significant amount of money. Well, in Jesus, we believe that we've received an inheritance, and it's bigger than a chunk of cash, and it's bigger than an heirloom. And this morning, we're going to unpack what that inheritance looks like. And if you look on your handout, there's a passage on there. And for those of you who do math, that's 27 verses. And I just thought I needed to point out that we are not going to read and go in-depth on 27 verses, or else we'd be here for another five weeks. Um, and so what we're going to do today is I want to share with you, out of Galatians 3 and Galatians 4, I want us to walk through what I'm going to call four images of our inability. The Apostle Paul is going to share with us these four pictures of what our inability looks like and then what Jesus does in response. And so the first one is that, and this is relevant to this week we've had here in Prescott, the first one is a roadblock. The first image of our inability from this text in Galatians 3 is the image of a roadblock, that a road is impossible to pass through. And here's what Paul says in Galatians 3.10. He says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. See, what, what Paul is saying is that in, in the Old Testament, there was a list of laws. It began with Ten Commandments, and by the time of Jesus, it had ballooned to 600-plus laws that governed every area of life. And Paul says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all, so 600-plus, things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, I'm not sure I could even remember what 600 laws were, but I know for sure I couldn't keep them all. Even the original 10 I've broken. Some of them on the way here this morning, you know? And you have too. You've lied. You've lusted after and coveted what belonged to somebody else. You've dishonored your parents. You've worshiped other gods. You've, some of us have stolen things that belong to other people. And according to this verse, the road is closed and we are cursed because we have not kept all of the law. None of us are perfect. None of us are righteous. And in the same way that there were roads blocked this week because of the fire here in Prescott, our sin becomes a roadblock and we can't get to God. 
We can't get to where it is that we want to go. But the good news is, is that while our failures have created a roadblock, Jesus opens the road. In Galatians 3.13, if you have your Bible open, you can look down to verse 13. Paul writes, But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So if you've ever been on a road where a tree fell and the road was blocked and you couldn't get through, I want you to imagine that that, that tree is your sin. It's my sin. It's our brokenness. And it creates a roadblock. It's a sign of our inability to keep all of the laws that we're supposed to. But the good news is, is that if you can imagine that piece of wood, Jesus took a piece of wood himself that was our roadblock. And it became the cross that he hung on. He became a curse on our behalf. The roadblock that was present, he took on himself and he opened the road. And so if, if you've ever been under the assumption that being a Christian or following Jesus meant following a bunch of rules, the outcome of that is recognizing that you can't follow all the rules and that you need Jesus to come and do for you what you can't do for yourself. That's the first image. The second image is the image of a funeral. In verses 15 through 22, Paul reminds us of some things that we would have thought about at a funeral. Beginning in verse 17, this is what we read. Paul says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, that's, that date is the date that God gave a promise to Abraham. The date that the law came, 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. You see, God had promised Abraham that he was going to bless all the peoples of the world through Abraham. Question for you. How many of you in this room have ever put together a, a will? How many in the room have a will? You know? And that's good. You guys are planners in here. I appreciate this. Um, your families and children do too. You know, when Danny and I went, first went over to Zambia in 2011, we put together a will. That way, if we were to die in Africa, there would be some prescription over what was to be done with all of our stuff and all of the debt that we had from school. Um, I'm sure our, you know, our, I'm sure our loan companies appreciated that. Um, and then when we had Wesley, we, we addended to the law, um, to, the, to the will, you know, who would take care of him. And then we had Max and Shay. And, and so we've continued to address this. And, and a will is basically a preparation document so that when a person dies, there isn't a fight by the court or by family on what's going to happen to the stuff and the responsibilities of that person. And it's, uh, it's, it's something that would be pulled out after a funeral and say, okay, what do they want to do? And, and what Paul is saying here in these verses is he's saying the law which came after this promise that God made, this will that God made, the law doesn't change what God said, that God was going to bless all the peoples of the world through Abraham. The law doesn't make that promise void, even though we're broken. You might say, well, well what, what does happen with that, that law? Paul goes on, why then the law? But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that by the promise of faith in Jesus Christ, that might be given to those who believe. So the, 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 what Paul is saying is the scripture here describes the law as a protection or an imprisonment or in some ways a governor to hold back or to restrain. Many of you, when you drove here today, you drove down Sheldon to turn into the college here. Does anybody in the room know what the speed limit is on Sheldon? 
35 miles an hour. Now, I'm not going to ask you how many of you drove 55 miles an hour or 45 miles an hour, but I'll just tell you, I didn't drive 35 miles an hour. Most of us don't drive exactly the speed limit. And by having the speed limit sign up, it doesn't make everyone drive the speed limit. But here's what it does. If there was no 35 miles an hour, some of you would drive 45 or 55. Or if you were in a really big hurry or had a really nice car, you might try 90. (laughs) The speed limit doesn't remove the evil and brokenness in your heart. The speed limit restrains it. And so what Paul is saying is that the law does not make anyone righteous. Just by having laws, you don't move from being a person who's sinful to a person who's good. Instead, the law restrains. And that's why if you're a person who has presumed that you can get to God through your own goodness and following the law, what you're going to find is that the law doesn't make you good. The law only restrains the brokenness and evil within you. The promise that God made to Abraham was like a seed that was planted in the ground, and one day it came to fruition through Jesus. God made a promise that one day Jesus fulfilled, and Jesus did for you and me what the law never could. That's why we celebrate what we celebrated this morning in the life of Jesus. The third image that Paul shares with us is the image of a babysitter. And while a lot of us don't think we need a babysitter anymore, Paul disagrees. Paul says the law is a babysitter for us. Beginning in verse 24, he says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, he says, for in Christ Jesus you are all now sons of God through faith. So he says that the law was like a babysitter or a nanny or an au pair. It was that person that you put in charge of your children while you were away. And that wasn't the permanent responsible party for the children. It was the temporary responsible party. And so the law was there to carry on the people of God until Jesus Christ came. And so Paul says, but you are now in Christ And you're now sons of God. You don't need that guardian anymore. But here's the problem. I think a lot of us prefer the law to faith. I think a lot of us prefer the law. There was a season in time where when I preached, I only ended my sermons in questions. Now I end with next steps. But I used to always end with questions. And the people I was preaching to, there was a couple, they would get so mad at me. So mad. And they came and told me and said, Scott, why do you always end with questions? Well, I want you to think about this for more than half an hour a week. They said, well, just tell us what to do, Scott. Just tell us what to do. And I'm like, no. Well, why not? Because I don't want you to have a relationship with me. I want you to have a relationship with God. I don't want you following what I tell you to do. I want you to follow what God tells you to do. And a lot of us prefer the law to faith because we just want somebody to tell us what to do. We don't want to have to trust and follow God. And I think maybe even the scarier truth to this is that for a lot of us, control is easier than trust. 
The reason we prefer a lot of faith is that we prefer to be in control. And when it comes to our actions, a lot of us believe that we can control God if we just do all the right things. If I go to church and I pray and I read my Bible and I tithe and go on a mission trip once in my life and I bring my kids to church and I put a bumper sticker on my car, I listen to Christian radio, then God will not allow anything bad to happen to me. We're not trusting and following God. We're trying to manipulate him. And this is true in our relationship with God. This is true in our relationship with people. It's a lot easier to try to control people than it is to trust them. Some of us are in relationships. Some of us are in marriages that are marked more by control than trust. Control requires no vulnerability. Trust requires all vulnerability. And what Paul is saying is, guys, you've grown up. There was a time when you were small children where you needed a babysitter. But you're now, you're now grown-ups. You're now sons of God. You have no need for the law in the way that you did before because you're now sons. See, the law makes a great babysitter, but in Jesus Christ, we grow up to have a relationship with him, which is a great segue into the fourth image the image of adoption. Paul uses this image of adoption, that we have been adopted into God's family. In chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, this is what Paul says. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, and the implication is daughters too, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. See, the image that, that Paul is trying to describe to us is it's not just that we were sinful and broken and in need of a savior, and Jesus now forgives us in the same way that you might have forgiveness or um, removal of guilt for crimes in court, but we're now adopted into his family. I said this last week, none of you were born into the family of God. You may have been born into a Christian family, but you were not born into the family of God. The only way to get into the family of God is to be adopted into it. And I have some friends who are adopted. Their, their parents weren't indebted to them because they were just born to them. No, their parents chose them. And because they've been adopted, it gives them a whole new frame of reference for their relationship with God. See, at the end of that verse, verse 6, what Paul says is that God has given us the spirit of his son, and we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, some of you hear Abba, you think of a 1970s band or a musical. It's not what we're talking about here. The word Abba in Greek was an, a word of intimacy for a father. It's, it's like daddy or papa. Um, my son Wesley, was, was his first, first year of life, he went to a Spanish-speaking daycare, and so we believe that Wesley actually understood Spanish before he understood English. And so because of that, the first word he learned to use for me wasn't dad or daddy, it was papa. So now all my kids call me Papa. And I was a little bit weird when I was 30 to be called Papa. It's typically a grandpa term, um, but I, I love it. 
And if Wes came up to me and started asking me, Father this and Father that, I would say, what do you want, little kid? You know, like, you know, be a little bit formal and weird. But when he calls out Papa, I know that he's calling out to me because I'm his dad and there's an intimacy in that relationship. And what the gospel announces, we went over this definition week one, the gospel announces our forgiveness. It says that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, our sin is exposed and we are not rejected. We are fully known and fully loved. See, the good news that we're announcing in this series, this Jesus plus nothing gospel, is that God knows everything about you. Everything. That thing you're thinking about right now, he knows that too. And because of Jesus, your sin is exposed and you aren't rejected. You're fully known and fully loved. You're a child who's been adopted into his family. And even when your sin was exposed and you were fully known, he chose to give his life for you and make it possible for you to be adopted into his own family. That's why the Jesus plus nothing gospel is often summed up with a word, and that word is grace. It's a word that our world does not know. Every other religion in our world is marked by the opposite of it. Earn your way to God. Be a good person. Try to keep God happy. The Jesus plus nothing gospel is nothing like that. In Jesus, we've been given an inheritance. And in the same way you've inherited money or an item or a piece of property from someone, not because of something you did, but because of who you are, the adoption that we experience in Jesus and the inheritance that comes with it, it comes not because of anything we did. It comes because of who Jesus is and what he's done, and that's called grace. And so I thought at this point in this series, it'd be really good for you to hear a story of some people whose life has been marked by the opposite of this Jesus plus nothing story and then by this Jesus plus nothing story. And so I'm going to invite Michael and Janice Young up to join me on stage here. If you give them a round of applause. Microphones. Can you just grab the microphones for him? They're just to your right, Michael. So this is Janice. This is Michael. Um, you uh, often experience Michael uh, in the background in the slides. Uh, they just became official members of our church a couple weeks ago. Um, they started attending. Yeah. They started attending back in uh, September, so they're coming up on a year with us. And um, uh, as I got to know Michael and Janice over this year, they started sharing a little bit of their story and what brought them to Cornerstone. And for me, it is the perfect illustration of this series. And so there's just a couple questions we wanted to talk through this morning. Can't tell your whole story. Um, but tell us a little bit first about the church that you grew up in and that you were a part of and some things that that church believed. Um, I was five years old when my parents started listening to Herbert W. Armstrong. He had a radio show uh, that he called uh, The Wonderful World Tomorrow, and that's what he thought the gospel was all about, was the coming world tomorrow that was like the millennium. And um, 
He also taught that we needed to obey a lot of the laws that the Israelites were given, um, the unclean meats, the holy days. Um, we had three tithes. We had a first tithe, second tithe, and third tithe. We, um, we didn't, we thought, I mean, I it was taught to us that Christmas was pagan and that Easter was pagan and um, Halloween, of course. And um, so when I was a small child, I would go to school and I couldn't um, make pictures of Santa Claus or Easter bunnies. So I had to do flowers and snowflakes. And <laughs> so it, it just, um, it changed our whole lives. And uh, I always felt like I was kind of the odd man out with just about everything. <laughs> so. And what was the name of the church? Uh, it was called the Worldwide Church of God. At the time, it was the Radio Church of God, but then it changed to Worldwide Church of God. And then, Michael, you got involved at a certain yeah, age, too. My, uh, You're on. You're good. My, yeah. um, my father started attending. Well, he started listening to the radio show, and then he started attending in uh, 1963 or 4. Uh, and it kind of was a burden in the family because mom didn't want to go where he was going. So on the weekend, my brother and sister and I had to decide... You know, who do we go with, mom or dad? So it was kind of tough on the family, but uh, I attended several times with my dad. And as a 14-year-old, I was never more shocked in my life to hear people say the things they were. I'd never heard a sermon where the minister used the word vomit on, from the pulpit. But that's how they preached, and it was fire and brimstone stuff. And so it was, uh, it was quite an education. You know, you told me that um, you just kind of followed your dad. Yeah. Your dad, your dad said it was right and true, and so you just followed it. Yep. Um, over time, that kind of became a burden, you know, you said in your family. The, the third year when you had to pay th three tithes, I guess that caused some problems with your parents. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, when you're, well, we had five kids, so having to tithe 30% of your income in a year, it was tough. It was very tough. And just keeping the holy days. Uh, I, I don't know if, how many of you have heard of the days of unleavened bread. I mean, we had to get every ounce of leaven out of our house. Every ounce. And it was a burden. I mean, you're vacuuming everything. You're cleaning behind. You, t you remove everything from the cupboards to clean so you don't have any leaven. It was, a, it was an extreme burden. And you shared a little bit, but um, what did it feel like to be a part of a community like that? You know, you used the word cult. You know, where did it feel like to be a place where it was all about the law, it was all about being perfect, and um, there you just, and I think you described me at one point that it was a, it was a burden, it was oppressive. Yes, um, you never, you knew that, you know, like with the days of eleven bread, that there were there was leaven somewhere in the house. I mean, how do you get it out from underneath your, where your, uh, inside your couch? <laughs> yeah. We used to have to hose down our toaster. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And then it would be dry by the end of the seven days of unleavened bread. But, I mean, it was just, it was impossible to keep these laws the way they really are said to, that they need to be kept. So I always felt um, burdened, yes, definitely burdened, and um, like an oddball, you know. So, and I, I, I think that the emphasis was so much on... 
um, what we did. And it, we never, they didn't preach about Jesus very often. So, you know, I would read in the, in the Bible that God was love. And it was like, well, this doesn't seem like love to me, <laughs> you know. So. And then something pretty incredible happened. Um, right around the time that Herbert Armstrong was dying or died, a pretty big change happened in your church. Tell us about that. What was the year? 94. 94. 1994. Uh, Herbert Armstrong was, he was an old man when I first heard him, but he was, he was getting up in there in age and was um, reflecting, I think is a good word, uh, on what had transpired. And he was to a point where he knew he had to uh, choose a successor to take his spot as the chancellor or the, you know, pastor general. And so he selected a man named uh, Joseph Dukach, who was an incredible man himself. But um, one of the things he said to him was, there's some things here that I don't think we've been doing right. And he says, I want you to research them and, and follow up on it. And that was kind of his last wish. And so Joseph Dukach did that, and he, he got scholars. He got all the information he could. He had people doing research. And the biggest thing was we found out we were wrong, you know. And here we, we, we were told for years that we were the chosen ones, you know. When God returned, we were going to be taken first. I mean, that's awfully arrogant, you know. But we just latched on to mainstream Christianity, and that's when our lives changed. So in 1984, in mass, the church switched from law yeah. to grace. Well, I won't say in mass. Well, tell us about that. Because most of the church said, no, we're going to go away and follow what Herman Armstrong taught us. So that was a, there was a major split, you know. And so we were the Worldwide Church of God, and all kinds of different churches came up. Just a humorous note, there was one major group that they called themselves the United Church of God. The comical thing is, is after that, they split four times. <laughs> I'm serious. It's, so they, I don't know, United was not a good name to pick. So, uh, so, you know, that was almost, you know, 24, 23 years ago. Yeah. Um, how has that event and what's followed changed how you approach faith and church differently now? Um, I, my... All of my siblings left the church and even urged me not to stay because that this was all very... Satan was leading this, you know, Joe Dukach to the wrong way. And uh, so I, I decided that I needed to just prove it to myself, so I started reading Galatians. And it was like, whoa, the law is obsolete. So it was like eye-opening to me, and um, then I started, it was like, that was the beginning of knowing that God loved me, and that all of my beliefs before, when I would read that, were true, and that, um, so and I started, it was like he was opening my eyes to all, the, to the true gospel, and it was just so freeing, and so absolutely joyful, to, to just accept all this wonderful truth about what Jesus did for us 
that um, to this day, I just, I, I, I can't stop thanking him, you know? How about you, Michael? Yeah, it's, I mean, the same goes for me. The way she did it about it, she got her, she hurt her back. <laughs> and she was bedridden, and so all she could do was read the Bible. <laughs> when, except when I was carrying her to the bathroom and stuff. <laughs> but um, the astounding thing for me was, Herbert Armstrong used to tell us, every time he preached, whether it was on the radio or in person, was, don't believe me, prove it to yourself. He told us that. So why all these people left, it just frustrated me. I couldn't understand this, you know. And when, when the Bible says that the old covenant is done away, I give you a new covenant. Why isn't everybody here? That's, what I, that's the, the thing that is stuck with me all these years. And, but it's great now. So we just keep hoping more people come. Well, we're really grateful that you guys are here, and we're grateful that you found us. Part of why you started, found us, you started watching us online, mm-hmm. and you were watching to make sure we didn't teach the law, but we taught grace. Mm-hmm. And so we're glad that you, uh, you found that, and we're glad that you're here. So why don't you give them a round of applause for sharing their, their story this morning. Thank you, guys. You can leave the chair here. You're good. Here you go. Well, with the time that um, we have left, I just wanted to, to, to build on that. And um, the first time I heard that story, I was just reminded of how many people I know who are living under that. Maybe you are. Maybe you're not part of the worldwide church of God, but you're functioning in that way. Somebody once told me that, that most Christians uh, preach grace, but functionally they're legalists. We live as if God loves us and looks at us in response to what we do or don't do. And so I've got some steps for you that I want you to reflect on, and they're on the back of your handout. And the first one is I, I want to challenge you to identify where you're trusting in your ability, and I added the word inability just so you think about that, instead of your inheritance. I want you to think, think this week and identify places where you go, man, I'm trusting in my ability instead of what God's given me. I'm trusting in what I can do at, in place of what God can do. And really, I'm going to challenge you to, to reflect on that and, and respond to that in light of what you heard today. Um, second, I want to challenge you to make a list of the people that you know and love who need to experience the Jesus plus nothing gospel. Because I, I, I want you to know that this isn't just a message for you. you know, as Michael said, this is really good news. And other people need to hear it. And there are even some people in your life who claim to follow Jesus who need to hear it. Who are following not Jesus plus nothing, but Jesus plus something. And I want you to make a list of those people and begin praying for them and begin asking that God uh, would use you in their life. And, and the third thing, and, and this may be even be the, the biggest challenge, is every day this week, I want you to take a moment and I want you to pray a prayer of surrender and trust, giving God control. Because I think for a lot of us, we, we live more out of control than trust. And um, I don't want you to go home and sing Carrie Underwood, Jesus Take the Wheel, by any means. Um, I won't be singing it because I'm not allowed to sing in my house because I'm not a good singer. Um, but, but I want to really challenge you to do that. And so this morning, um, the band's going to come out, and they're going to lead us in a song that's about what we believe. And I think it's going to be a great close to the morning. But before they do, I want you to just take your pen and your pencil, or whatever you're writing, and just put them down on the ground. 
And I want you to, I'm just going to lead you in something here. And this is uh, something that I do on a, a regular basis, and I'm committing to do it every day this week. So with your stuff off your lap, I want you to just take your hands like this and kind of put them on your, on your knees with your, your palms facing down. And guys, you can bring the lights down a little bit at this point. Um, and I'm just going to lead you through a, a prayer of surrender and trust today. So with your, your palms facing down, God, we thank you so much for the good news that we've been talking about and hearing about all morning. And this morning, we, with our hands open, we surrender to you. We surrender to you our abilities. We surrender to you our inabilities. We surrender to you our angst, our fear, our insecurity, our shame. We surrender to you our imperfect efforts, all the ways and places we've tried to make ourselves look good in your eyes and the the eyes of other people. We surrender the masks and projections and fakeness that we've put out so that other people would think that we're better than we actually are. We surrender the heaviness that many of us carry around with trying to prove ourselves to you, to our parents, to our friends. And God, we pray that you would receive those things, that we would lay them here and leave them here. And now, if you would, would you turn your palms over and face them up? God, we invite you in. We want to receive your presence. We want to receive all of the inheritance you have for us. We want to receive courage in the place where we're afraid. We want to be secure in you in all the places where we feel really insecure. We, we want to receive your love and grace in the places that we feel guilt and shame. God, we want to receive freedom and peace in the places where we're just exhausted trying to be good enough. God, we want to receive all that you have for us. And so to this day, we put our faith and trust in you. It's you we believe in. It's you we're depending on. It's you that we need. We pray that you might give us all that we need for all that you've called us into. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for grace. Thank you that there's nothing else that we need. And we count it a joy that we can sing to and celebrate you this morning. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.